Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Finally, there is the one volume on India you need to read. You may wade through your Gua, your Rushdie, and all the rest of Indian authors as we all try to understand India. Rishir Sharma has done a public service for most of the West by writing a wonderful one-volume book of his childhood and India's future. It is a fabulous exercise, Democracy on the Road. Can't say enough about it. Rishir, you begin in the middle of nowhere in Bijan. Tell us about your childhood when you would go, the fancy pants child of a naval officer, naval attache, whatever, and you'd go see your grandfather in the middle of Indian no- nowhere. What was that like? You know, Tom, uh, this is a personal memoir, and uh, what I try and capture here was that what was childhood like back in India growing up in the 1970s and the 1980s? And so like this town that you mentioned was, you know, like about 160 kilometers from Delhi. But what was remarkable those days was this, that we'd go to this sort of uh, you know, back of beyond town there and we had no choice. It, it was not a, like as if our parents asked us that where do you want to go on summer vacation? You just went, uh, you know, were taken to your grandparents' yeah. place and to go out this place in Bijnor, there, were, uh, there was hardly any electricity out there. You, uh, you didn't have running water all the time. And you had the, the, the sort of raw discrimination that you would think of in America a century ago. Uh, so, right. you know, like the, the caste system in India well, is very sort of deep. And that's what we got to see as kids <clears throat> growing s- up out there. Slam it forward to the president, Modi fighting for his political life. And I want you to do that across the arc of the book in your wonderful quote, let me first do my Colgate. I mean, it is about an India we don't know. Tell us about the India. India right now that Mr. Modi confronts? Well, the leader that you're talking about is a very big regional leader from the largest state of India of Uttar Pradesh. And that's what he really confronts, that we, like here in the international media, like to think of India in a single narrative, which is Modi versus Mm -hmm. the opposition. But the real challenge to Modi is coming from a host of regional leaders. And that's what I try and capture in this book, that this is a country of many sort of uh, states. It's more like the European Union than it is like a homogeneous entity. And each state has its own narrative and that narrative is what we need to understand what this election is going to be about. It's going to be Modi versus a bunch of regional leaders because like in India, some national identities are much stronger than a national identity. Each state believes in their own language, uh, in their own culture. And that is something which I think we don't appreciate as we try and look India as a monolithic entity. And this is a very complex society. And as you put it with, you know, family, caste, community, economics, development, money and corruption, what will the election actually focus on? Is it economics? Is it terrorism? Is it something else? Well, a whole bunch of factors because to win an election in India is a massive secret in terms of what really sort of helps you win an election in India. Like one thing I mentioned in the book is that there is a very curious term which has been 
popularized in India. It's called anti-incumbency. What it basically suggests is that most leaders in India tend to lose their election. This is very different from even the US or the UK, where most politicians tend to get re-elected when they try for it. In India, two-thirds of governments have lost their election ever since they, India became a multi-party democracy. So that tells you there's a deep frustration amongst the people about what their leaders end up delivering because the state is so broken. And that's the challenge which really Modi faces as he heads through the polls. How to buck this trend of anti-incumbency? How to sort of deal with these regional leaders? How to sort of deal with the fact that when he goes to the south of India, and that's something we don't cover enough, the language he speaks, Hindi, is sort of not understood or even detested by many parts in the well, south of India. It's like you go, uh, you know, I captured in this travelogue of mine that if you go to places like in the south of India and you speak to them in Hindi, it's like going to the French countryside and speaking to the French in English. That's how they sort right. of, you know, consider it to be offensive. Well, let us continue. Rishir Sharma, Democracy on the Road, I really can't say enough about it. It is the new definitive one volume on the fabric of an India not covered by me or anybody else in the media. Read you the start of David Kelly's weekly note. Oh, please. A beautiful movie out of Africa. Two lions gather on the hero's grave and look out at the cattle on the plain below. It is a princely scene, an assumption that the animals below are somehow the property of the lions to consume whenever they feel hungry. For some reason, <laughs> great sound effects. I was reminded of this scene this week as politicians from both parties decried what they saw as corporate bad behavior and proposed measures to fix it. <laughs> David, does the 2020 presidential election play into any of this? Yes, I, I'm, I'm afraid it does. I mean, I, one of the things that I worry about, and you see this in places like Italy, is that populism from the left and populism from the right, both of them need a bad guy. And, uh, and a rich bad guy is even better. And so uh, I do think that you know, corporate profits are very high, corporate margins are high. I think there is some threat from both the left and the right that things will be done to reduce corporate profits in terms of regulations, in terms of taxation, in terms of restrictions, and that is some, something of a threat to the stock market. When you look for a bad guy, you often end up with bad policy um, yes. as a consequence. So let's talk about the policy more specifically. Do you yep. have a base case, what you expect to happen in the next couple of years? Well, uh, yeah, I think that, uh, first of all, I think, the, I think the, the economy will probably just move forward. I think the real threat does come uh, after 2020 when we have uh, an election. It'll be, it'll be interesting to see if, if we get policy change. You will need one party to sweep or the, or the other, I think, to have that ha happen. But there does seem to be consensus that uh, things like stock buybacks are, are a bad thing, at least in the political... Now, I don't think they are, personally. I actually think, well, you know, if you can't use the money, just, you know, distribute it to somebody who can. Pharaoh's flying the DC-3 at, you know, 4,000 feet. Let's go up to 43,000 feet right now and look at the broader picture, which is the debt is expanding, the yeah. deficit is expanding. I, I believe we can state the twin the twin deficits will stay with us and be yep. germane, et cetera. Doesn't all this run into not austerity, but at least some form of budget responsibility? I don't think so. I think the problem the problem how, is how can you say that? I mean, well, come the, on. The, well, the problem I, I don't <clears throat> think for, it happens for years, unfortunately, because the problem is you know, nobody ever does anything about a crisis until it becomes a crisis, and 
the what we're seeing is I agree gro- it's not growing, a crisis right now but that, but there won't be any political incentive <clears throat> to do anything about it exactly. the, nat- the natural constituency for prudence when it comes to the budget or indeed prudence when it comes to trade those constituencies okay, but, are, okay. are uh, in retreat let's say democratic president let's say democratic house maybe it's a republican senate fine yeah. i think we can all state the certain path john tucker help me here is they're going to spend more money right when do they run into that and constraint? Raise my taxes. I mean, David, you've—I mean, I've got great respect for how you've been doing this uh, for for years. I—I mean, I, I don't—I—I I don't think that we—we we may see some more spending. I don't think that we'll see a serious attempt to deal with a nine hundred billion dollar deficit because, frankly, it's too big. You can't—you know—how do you, how are you ever going to get that down to zero? Uh, so they won't try because they, they can't make much headway. Yeah. And so I think it—I think it does expand, uh, and eventually it just makes us poor uh, because you know if we, if we spend beyond our means today. We will have to spend beneath our means in the future. And in the meantime, there's always something to worry about, yet the market is up nicely through 2019. And, and what I find really fascinating, actually, just taking a broader view of the global economy and global markets right now, if you asked a range of investors what their biggest concern, biggest regional concern was, it has pivoted away from China somewhat and towards Europe. And then if I asked those same individuals just to guess where the European equity market was this year, I don't think many of them would have guessed that we're up 9% on the stock mm-hmm. 600 in Europe. So are we just climbing a wall of worry more broadly? Well, European stocks are pretty cheap. I mean, it's, uh, I admit that we, need, you know, we do need a higher interest rates in Europe at some stage to help out the banking sector. And it's, it's extraordinary to me that, that the ECB doesn't do something about that. But overall, European stocks are pretty cheap. Europe is still recovering, despite you know, there's weakness in final demand, but you're seeing unemployment continue to trek down. And, and, you know, unemployment does one of two things. It either goes up sharply or comes down slowly. It's still coming down slowly in Europe. So I think that Europe is still recovering more slowly. And um, I think it is reasonable, therefore, to, to invest in European stocks. Remember, nothing in the world is that cheap in terms of risk assets because money has been cheap for so long, and that's pushed up the price of all of them. So we've heard from three key ECB policymakers in the last week. Executive board member Benoit Coré. We've heard from the chief economist in the last 24 hours and the Bank of France governor as well. All of them singing from the same hymn sheet, seemingly, that they need to take note of the slowing growth. What we all fail to get our hands around is what they can actually do to offset the weakness we've seen so far, David. What can they do? What they can do is throw out the playbook. The playbook has not worked for the ECB for years. Um, running negative interest rates stimulates absolutely nothing. It acts as a drag. In fact, they all admit that. What they need to do is, uh, I believe, um, is, is abandon that policy, try to get back to a, you know, to recognize that the, U- the European economy may have some legs on its own, um, and uh, and normalize interest rates. That I think if they do that, that would actually help Europe in terms of confidence. I think it would help the European banking system, uh, and that would uh, you know I think actually help Europe uh, establish better growth. That's the classic should shouldn't debate. I mean, yeah. it's the will won't that counts. I mean, they're not yeah. going to do that, are they? No, and so so Europe is going to have to wait for uh, I think. A trade peace would certainly help. I think Europe, you know, Europe's not getting hurt as much as Asia by the trade conflict, but it is actually getting hurt. Um, Europe does trade much more than the United States does as a bloc. Um, so I think trade peace or more trade certainty would, would, would help. That's how the story's changed in the last week or so. The American administration, the US administration, turning its attention towards the Europeans now and the European officials spending the weekend saying, if you slap auto tariffs on us, we're going to retaliate. Is this the next battleground, the continent, for a trade dispute? I don't think so. I think, I think, that, the, I think that the administration has got more than it can handle 
with a with a Chinese trade dispute. I know that that's how they started with you know we're going to we're going to do something about Mexico and China and Canada and Korea and Europe. Yeah. But I think I think the the the, the next act of this is going to be really focused on China. So I expect them to to um, come come to a, oh. a deal or or back off from this. I mean to to talk about American autos as being some sort of an or sorry European autos as being a national security threat. Um, it, right. You know it, it, it defies the Oxford English Dictionary to be honest. David Kelly, thank you so much. Thanks, for David. Morgan Asset Management on uh, the political economy of the moment and how it folds into all that we're doing. Right now in Washington, our Kevin Cirilli on this day where Bernie Sanders says, I will do it again. Kevin, remind us who Bernie Sanders was in 2014 and 2015 before he attempted to defeat Hillary Clinton. Well, he was a political independent, but he he associated uh, with more of the progressive socialist, democratic socialist, and largely was was there before the likes of Senator Elizabeth Warren yeah. and Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Did, did he use the word socialist four years ago? No. Uh, yeah. And and if he did, he he tried to, to but, but now you have politicians who are embracing it. And Republicans, who quite frankly, are trying to frame yeah. the left in that regard. The difference between last time <laughs> and this time is that now he faces a crowded Republican right. vote. And remember some of the vulnerabilities of his campaign, particularly on Second Amendment uh, gun rights. He was much more, uh, he was, a, the Clinton campaign criticized him on that. Uh, and he was also criticized for not being a Democrat uh, and not joining the Democratic Party. Okay, is he a Democrat, is he a Democrat now? Uh, well, I mean, he's running as a Democrat, uh, but but I think that he will be he will the, the same lines of attack. You right. know, last time he was really the only game in town. No offense to Martin O'Malley. No, but 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 this is an important point, folks. I went back and looked, and I'd forgotten how well Senator Sanders had done against the Secretary of State at the time. As you point out, uh, Kevin Cirilli, what a difference this time because it was Clinton alone essentially, and now it's not. How will Bernie Sanders change? Because and now it's not. Well, he's he's definitely a top tier candidate simply because of name recognition, uh, and he, uh, along with Joe Biden, should Biden enter into the race, uh, as well as the likes of Elizabeth Warren. They have name ID. They have name recognition, uh, and yeah. that's really the the biggest telling point as of now. Kevin, I wonder how the White House view Bernie Sanders running again. Is President Trump smiling this morning as this news breaks? Yes. Yes, he's grinning ear to ear, anecdotally speaking. Uh, look, I mean, crazy Bernie. Crazy Bernie was how he referred to him during the last campaign. Uh, and and any time you have a socialist or someone who is embracing that AOC type of ideology, the, the Republicans right now feel that that's a win. Uh, and, and they are, you know, grinning ear to ear because every Republican that I talk to uh, argues that that's going to help them in the long run. And Kevin, it reminds me of Jeremy Corbyn, this does. Tom, in yeah. the UK, you have a candidate that seems to be in opposition with his own party as much as he is with the opposition themselves. And I just wonder, well, Kevin, is this an individual that enjoys being in opposition? Yes, but I also think that he would argue that he has successfully pulled his party to the left. I mean, it was in many ways, there is a comparison to make between Trump 
and Sanders in the sense that Trump campaigned on the wall uh, that everyone thought was, you know, like when it first came out was a was a far fetched, far flung idea. And, you know, he made that issue part yeah. of Republican ideology in the same way that he he recreated trade policy for <clears throat> Republicanism. Right. Now, Medicare for all. Green New Deal. These are things that okay. are in in the in the zeitgeist. Within the the zeitgeist, if he did pretty darn good in the Democratic primary of 2016, did his people vote for Secretary Clinton against President Trump? And is there's a feeling that if Senator Sanders runs now, he provides strength to whoever the Democratic Party candidate is uh, in November of 2020. Well, that's a that's a hard question to answer because it's, it it also gets to the notion of American politics, where if you get out of the Beltway, if you get out of New York City, and you talk to voters, there there are a, I know this personally. There is a part of voters who were deciding between a Senator Sanders or a Donald Trump, and those voters exist. And that streak of populism, and now to some extent, democratic socialism. That very much exists, and those are key independent voters, voters who went for Obama and then went for Trump. Those are key independent voters that I think are so difficult for pollsters to keep track of, but they are out there, and they're out there more frequently than I think well, we in, in the mainstream press realize. We will discuss this further as well. Kevin Surley, our chief Washington correspondent, of course, look for his important conversation. Halsek with us. They're absolutely thrilled that she's with us uh, today. First on Walmart, and then we'll talk about uh, the effect of fashion and the effect of Karl Lagerfeld across all of her world. Sarah Halsek does fashion and retail for Bloomberg Opinion. Sarah, on Walmart, what is the Walmart distinction right now, up 3%? What are they doing differently than others? Uh, so some of it is just retail 101 that they're they're doing really well. Um, so, if, for example, during the holiday season, they did things like have uh, folks stationed in aisles to check people out without having to go to those cash registers up at the front. That does a lot to improve throughput. That does a lot to keep customers happy. Um, so they've also done a lot of work on making sure they're in stock on key items. And they really made a, a big play for those Toys R Us dollars. This was the first Christmas without yeah. Toys R Us, and they dramatically yeah. expanded their Paul, toy assortment and that paid off. Uh, this is a huge deal. I'm sorry, but who's going to replace the psyche of absolutely. Toys R Us? Yeah, absolutely. And it looks like, uh, you know, it's not just the online players, Amazon, but it's also Walmart and lots of other people going for those dollars. So, Sarah, you know, this is very good news coming out of Walmart. I think it bodes well, obviously, for the retail sector, especially after the weak retail sales number uh, we got for December uh, last week. How does the, you know, how, how do these two square in your mind? That's the thing. They kind of don't, right? Um, so I think Walmart's result is more consistent with what we saw from other company reports about the holiday season. So Target, another general merchant, had a really strong uh, November and December. And other retailers like Five Below, Urban Outfitters, Lululemon, all had good holiday seasons. And these are companies that have been pretty consistently executing in a you know time of retail turmoil and tumult. Uh, the retailers that had tough holiday seasons were the ones that have been struggling all along, uh, like Macy's and JCPenney, for example. And so I think that Commerce Department number uh, remains a bit of a puzzle, and I will certainly be watching the revisions closely uh, when we get them next month. 
So, sir, the one of the numbers that jumped out at me was the e-commerce uh, uh, sales for Walmart were up 43% in the quarter. What are they doing right there? Yeah, so I think one of the key things has been to expand the assortment dramatically. They have really uh, worked hard to get more third-party merchants on their site to have a more robust marketplace. Um, and they also did an important step this year of including um, those marketplace sellers in their free two-day shipping offer. And so I think that just made their offer more attractive overall uh, in comparison to Amazon. Um, they've also been working a lot to uh, have some interesting private label brands to have uh, home furnishing brands that you can't get anywhere else but Walmart, and have really been trying to work on the design and aesthetic of those items to be more competitive to what you see from Target. We all know that Target nickname that they have um, for their ability to deliver very cheap, chic stuff at good prices. Walmart's been trying to encroach on that territory, and I think that helped them in the holiday quarter, be, especially online. That would be Walmart or something. I'm trying to come up with a chic name for Walmart. <laughs> Volmar. <laughs> Continue, Paul. Yeah, so, so Sarah, it's interesting. And, uh, you know, again, another shot in the arm uh, positively for the retailers. What is the company saying about, from their perspective, the health of the consumer? Nobody has their finger on the pulse of the uh, consumer like, like Walmart. What are they seeing? Yeah, so they did say that they expect to see uncertainty in the year ahead. And look, that makes sense, right? We have these um, increased tariffs from China, um, goods coming in from China looming that may or may not go into effect. And it's really hard to know how consumers are going to react to that. Uh, similarly, we have a lot of the consumer staple companies yeah. raising prices right now on things like uh, diapers, paper towels, tissues that have nothing really to do with the China dynamics, but have more to do with commodity price, yeah. the prices of pulp. And so as consumers start feeling uh, higher prices for all those everyday goods, it's sort of hard to know how that's going to ripple through the rest of their spending. And so Walmart's keenly aware of that and knows that that presents yeah. some uncertainty for them in the year ahead. Sarah Halsick with us, and we are thrilled that she's with us today. A true giant of European, of French, indeed of American fashion has died. Carl Lagerfeld at 85 years old. Sarah, as you well know, uh, for you to get this morning into the Chanel look is 12000 $850 just to get one of their summer looks of a the classic Chanel coat and a little dress thing uh, going as well, 6000 and 6000 uh, together. How does that filter down to mere mortals? How does Karl Lagerfeld and Chanel end up at Zara, end up at Walmart, end up at Saks, whatever? How does it filter down? Yeah, I, largely through the work of skilled merchants. Um, so basically, I think for a long time, this dynamic has existed where uh, the, the runway shows kind of set the tone yeah. for what's going to be sold <clears throat> elsewhere. And the merchants of these mid-priced uh, or even more accessible luxury uh, stores yeah. uh, go to those runway shows, see what the dynamics are, and try to adapt to them accordingly. And Carl Lagerfeld was certainly a tastemaker um, whose uh, sort of tastes and profiles were felt uh, throughout the industry right. for many decades. I will say, though, you know, the dynamics are changing because of the Internet. Um, we do have these street-style stars who are able to uh, kind of create trends uh, without, in a more <clears throat> bottom-up way as opposed to a top-down way, and that's something that luxury giants the world over are grappling with and trying to figure out. Who was doing, I mean, I mean, Gucci is the winner right now. I think they were up 49% in revenue, and then they failed up only 25% uh, year over year the next time around. I'm kidding, folks. They've been doing phenomenal <laughs> as well. I mean, is Gucci out Lagerfeld Lagerfeld? I mean, is that essentially what's happened? And again, Gucci filters down into everything that you report on, don't they? 
They sure do. And yes, recently, um, Gucci, under the leadership of Alessandro Michel, under his creative direction, uh, has been on a really strong run um, with things like their fur-lined loafer mules, uh, really sort of setting the trend and this logo trend that has been so strong. Remember, it was only five years ago we were talking about how the logo was dead um, and that no one was going to want to be seen wearing flashy things like that anymore. And Gucci was essentially Uh catalyzing a return to that look. And so Gucci's been a real trend center, a real pace setter. Uh, for the luxury industry overall. This is amazing. Sarah Halsick, thank you so much. It's always a joy to have James Suva on. He's out of San Francisco with City Group, where he looks at things I don't understand. But it's always a joy when you understand that and my Paul Sweeney and myself, we get in somewhere in the vicinity of 412 research reports a day. And every once in a while, like once, Paul, what, every 10 days, every eight days or whatever, yes. one just stands out and says, hey, stupid, shut up and read this. That would be 5G, not a game changer. Jim Suva with Citigroup Research joins us uh, right now. Paul, why don't you start out on 5G? Because you know way more than I do. Yeah, Jim, uh, thanks so much for joining us. You know, one of the hot topics certainly around all of technology is 5G. We've got phone companies spending billions of dollars on Spectrum. We've got technology companies saying we're going to fit out a new network across the country. But Jim, you're saying maybe let's step back and take a look. What do you think are the opportunities for 5G? Well, thanks for having me on. And I want to say 5G is very exciting. Now, for the common person out there, they think that more G is better than less G. So 5G is better than 4G. See, he just described me. You see how Jim Silva did that? He (laughs) He knows his audience. I've I've covered it. (laughs) Continue, Jim. Well, I'm sure, uh, Tom and Paul, you want more than just simply 5G is better than 4G. But when we take a look at it and we think about smartphones, like your iPhone or your various phones that you hold and use on a daily basis, will this be a, wow, got to have it, big upgrade, need to run and spend a lot of money to replace your new phone? And we believe the answer is no, that it's not a game changer. What we do believe is that all the networks are investing in it. It's a very expensive um, investment. They have to have it. And eventually it will roll out to allow like machines to talk to machines or more um, commonly commonly known, cars to talk to cars or to get your weather and traffic a lot better and better information. But the need to go out and buy a new smartphone, we do not think 5G is going to be a big game changer. And in fact, the first companies that roll out these newer technologies, a lot of times have suboptimal battery life. And most people want their smartphone to last all day long. So we actually ironically do not think Apple will be one of the first 5G smartphones out there. So, Jim, given that maybe it's not the game changer for the phone business, um, and, you know, some of these were very early days in 5G. What is your sense of the return on investment that a lot of these companies can make on these billions of dollars they're spending? Well, you correctly identified it correctly that it is indeed billions of dollars that companies are investing in this network called 5G. And it is very important. But the thing is, is if you don't invest it, you will be left behind. So whether you're a telecom operator in the United States or Europe or Asia, everyone else is investing in it. It simply becomes 
the basically table stakes of what you have to have to uh, okay. be in the game. If you don't invest it, you simply get left behind. So what is the return <clears throat> on investment? Right. That has left to be seen because here's the important thing. Most people today don't want to spend a lot more money to their cell phone provider or their cable operator. Yeah. They're simply pushing back. Another bill of an additional $10, $20, $30 a month, a lot of people are shy well, to make that additional payment. Jim Suvi, in, in your lengthy report, you've got a wonderful thing that even a dummy like I can understand. Let's go all Roy G. Biv right now. You've got the color span of 4G versus 5G millimeter waves. And obviously, even I can see that 5G is way, way better than 4G. For what? Bring it to the smartphone, whatever it is. You know, you mentioned I'm going to get weather better. Right now, I can get weather in Venice in like two seconds. I mean, I, I don't understand how this massive wave front helps anybody better other than business to business, as you state. So in your example of getting weather in two seconds, it simply could be in 20, you know, 80% faster than that. Now, that yeah. may seem immaterial for checking weather, but if you start thinking about a car that's going to talk to another car in front of it before it stops or gets in an accident, and more so than just sensing beep, 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 our minivan is you know, getting close to the wall. My children say, stop, daddy, stop. It's more than just talking amongst a sensor. It's also communicating further ahead at um, crashes in the road, on the bridges and in the tunnels. It's communicating also about the way that traffic lights should be timed. Instead of on a three-minute cycle yeah. during rush hour, they should be longer greens and less reds. And so that's what it's allowing you to do is information to process faster. Okay, okay. You and I, with our cell phones, <clears throat> yeah. you know, changing the weather from two seconds to point right. two seconds doesn't matter. I, uh, for our New York audience who all knows this, and I'll tell you nationwide, 6G is Fifth Avenue's lights. They've got them timed <laughs> on right. Fifth Avenue. So you can only drive it like 23 miles an hour to not hit every light. That's called 6G, Paul. Exactly. So, Jim, you know, I, I remain very dubious as to the returns that could be generated here. What are some of the ways that investors are positioning themselves for this 5G wave? Well, simply put right now, I think it's early in the game, and people are a little confused about even will this be a big upgrade cycle to smartphones or to base stations or things like that. We do not believe it's a big catalyst for Apple. That being said, we have a buy rating on Apple for different reasons, including the, the stock is valuation attractive as well as a dividend yield. And uh, right now, expectations for Apple are quite low. But another way to do this is a kind of a technical company that does all the testing Please. of all these base stations and things. And it's a company called Keysights, ticker K-E-Y-S. Okay, Jim Suva, thank you so much for Citigroup with a wonderful essay, thoughtful, thoughtful essay on 5G. And again, as I said earlier, get that from Citigroup affiliates. We, we uh, protect the copyright of all of our guests as well. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.